You're listening to a sermon from Free City Church in Lawrence, Kansas. We exist to extend the glory of God by making disciples through the gospel of Jesus Christ. Well, good evening. My name is Casey. I'm one of the pastors here. And uh, I, uh, I mean, last week I, I was kind of blown away. Um, after the service, I had several people want to talk to me. And uh, I was blown away for two things. Uh, one, uh, several people asked questions about what we're doing uh, in Fetier Turkey with the Taylors. And several people got online and started giving. And several people have talked about, hey, I'm going to give. We're, we're talking about what to give. And so just, man, I want to say thank you in advance for all of that. Um, and that's true of Kinsey and I also. Like, we're talking about what to give, and uh, we're going to give really, really soon. And then next week, 10 a.m., uh, man, I really encourage you to, to get online and just hear the story from David. Um, I might give a little recap of uh, how we've walked with them and how they've been in our lives and how we, important we think it is. And then just hearing the story from them and their experiences, man, every time I talk to them, there's some other incredible, crazy experience, and it gives me hope. Like, it gives me tons of hope, uh, you know, <laughs> there's so many crazy stories. But, you know, in talking about what does ministry look like, it doesn't look really any different. You know, in talking like, hey, what is it like uh, sharing your faith and evangelizing and having a church in an Islamic context? And he just kind of said, hey, people know who we are and what we're doing. Like, people know. We don't, re- we don't hide that from people. Um, our name is on the side of the building. Uh, people get curious, they ask us because they know us, and he's like, if they agree to read the Bible with us, man, it's almost something is going to happen. And so I was like, man, that's, that's kind of what we do. Like, that's why we have a Bible reading plan. We want you to read the Bible. And so it took some of the, the mystery away from it, but that's not, there, there was something else that people wanted to talk to me about, and uh, I, other pastors might have that experience often where people want to talk to them after the, the, the sermon. It's not always my, my experience, but people were so concerned about my um, lactose intolerance. Uh, like people were like, "Hey, listen, you can't deny it; it won't go away." Uh, and like sharing their symptoms with me. And I just wanted to let you know, I'm, I'm okay. Uh, I'm not fully convinced. It's just every time I drink milk, I have to run to the bathroom. But I'm not fully convinced yet. But um, we're gonna keep talking about Fetia for the next couple of weeks. And here we come to really the turn of, of the book, the turn of Mark. And so what's happened is Mark is recording what Jesus did and what he taught. And we've been focusing a lot on what Jesus did. And it's really showing us what the kingdom of God is going to be like, like how it's going to be ushered in. And we've been seeing, if you've been reading along and looking over it, you've been seeing words like immediately and moving to the next scene really, really fast. Mark is moving us really, really quickly to this moment Last week we talked about the declaration of Peter, that Peter stood up after Jesus said, hey, who do people say I am? And they said, man, some people say you're John the Baptist, back from the dead. Some people say you're like Elijah. Some say you're a prophet of old. But he says, and he says, who do you say I am? Which is the most important question that we could answer. Who do you think Jesus is? You have to answer that question. And Peter turns around and he says, listen, you are the Christ. And immediately, like if you look at verse 31 of chapter 8, immediately he changes the subject. He says, yeah, I am the Christ. He doesn't say, no, no, that's crazy talk. He says, yes, and the Christ must suffer, be rejected, and must die, and must be raised again. Listen, Jesus 
without an atoning death, a sacrificial substitutionary death for the penalty of our sin and without a resurrection is nothing. It's nothing. If Jesus didn't rise from the dead, Apostle Paul is going to say, what we're doing is completely in vain. And so it forces us, like when it says you are the Christ, he didn't say you are like the best teacher or you are like the best miracle worker or you're like just the most fun guy. You make everyone like have positive vibes. He didn't say any of that. He said something really, really specific when he said you are the Christ. And all of a sudden, the book really changes in a theme. First, we're identifying who Jesus is by what he does and by what he says about himself. And now there's a turn, and we are walking to the cross. You know, one commentary talked about uh, the gospel uh, of Mark, and it said in some ways, half of the, the gospel of Mark is his life, and the next half is the passion that we are walking to the cross of Jesus. And so it's just like, climatic moment when all of these things come up and the next thing that happens is this event that is full of emotion like all over the place like have you ever had an experience like you knew something like you could tell someone something about this thing or you could like talk about what it is like you could give all kinds of information but then you had an experience and it changed everything it changed your perspective And yet someone else might have walked in that same event and had a very different experience. This is talking about an an event like that. You know, my... uh my family, uh, Kinsey, Kinsey's family is from kind of Springfield area, kind of uh, southwest Missouri. And uh, man, they do, her family does the 4th of July really well, like really, really well. Her, her cousin uh, has some wedding venues, and so he has a fireworks guy. I didn't know you could have a fireworks guy. I'm a pastor, and I don't have a fireworks guy unless you count the kid that's selling me fireworks in the tent. I don't have a guy. So he gets fireworks way cheaper. You guys... If you go to the tent, we're all getting ripped off. And so, like, we pull the flatbed trailer out. There's, like, it's like a three-man event with blow torches, and there are all these mortar shells. And, like, if you've ever read headlines after the 4th of July of people who get severely hurt, and you have, like, judgmental, like, what is wrong with them? Like, I don't. I totally see how it happens. It is so addictive and it draws you in. And between the burst of light as you're running around with a blowtorch, dropping mortar shells into these tubes, and like the, 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 the glory of freedom is busting all around you, you see your kid's face. And in an essence, with their smiles and their intrigue, they're asking you this question, is my freedom worth the danger? And I'm like, yes. And it just builds, and every year it has to grow, and it has to have this crescendo, or decrescendo. I didn't do piano long, so I'm not for sure which one it is, where it just builds, and it builds, and it builds, and then every year it has to be bigger. It's exhausting. My kid's face, man, full of intrigue, like, look at this. And then there's another experience. I also see my wife's face, and it's a very different experience. Like, it's the look of fear And the look of whatever happens to you, you deserve it. But like an event that different people can walk away with very different experiences to one, joy and intrigue and wonder to another, like, I don't even know what that's all about. Like right here, 
we have one event that produces an array of emotions. Look at this. Like, look at verse 3 and verse 6. It says, we read words like this, radiant, intense, and terrified. And then we see, in like in verses you know, two through seven, kind of the middle of this, like we see this event that should look somewhat familiar. Like we see like Jesus is changed. We see that he meets with Moses and Elijah upon a mountain. Like a cloud of glory envelops them, and they hear a voice of God spoken over Jesus. And like that experiment of experience of excitement, wonder, and fear, like it brings like this galvanizing moment that the disciples didn't understand at this time, but yet this event is in all the synoptic gospels. And the whole idea of it, they didn't really understand what was happening, but looking back after the resurrection, it made perfect sense. And so can an experience, that may, maybe you even knew about it. You could have answered the test. You could have gone to seminary. You could have gotten an A on the test. And I've got some A's on some tests. You could have answered all the things, but all of a sudden something happened and it changed you. Can people have the same event and be, it changed them differently? is experience different than knowledge? Can you know something and then experience it and it makes it all the difference? Is experiencing Jesus different than learning about Jesus? Can you experience a life-changing event? And does that ever need to be experienced over and over again to galvanize you? Like all of these things are stepping out of this. Have you ever had the thought, if I could only have that kind of glory or that kind of relationship or that kind of love or that kind of vacation or that kind of recognition, you're talking about experience. If I could only have that, then I'd be okay. Has there ever been a pull in you like that? In Mark 9, we see a lot of things that are very, very familiar Lots of things the disciples would have recognized from reading about, but here they experience it, and it changes them. And so I just want to point out some familiar things. And so the first thing, we're going to look at a familiar scene, and we're going to spend most of our time there because there's a lot there. And then we're going to look at familiar faces, and we're going to talk about Moses and Elijah. And actually, that's where we talk mostly about Elijah because we talk about Moses a lot, and I kind of felt like we were leaving Elijah out, and he's He's a good dude. We need to talk about him. And then we're going to get to the end of it, and we're going to talk about a familiar experience that you have to have, that you have to have to be saved. And so the first thing, a familiar scene. This familiar scene is meant to show us who Jesus really is. And this is going to say that Jesus is greater than Moses by putting him next to Moses in a familiar scene. It's going to say all of Moses' life actually was pointing ahead to Jesus so that we could recognize him and know what he could do for us. It's going to say all kinds of things in this deja vu, though, deja vu, it's not English, deja vu moment, in this aha moment that connects what is to come with what has already transpired. And so like these familiar names and words and descriptions, they're not accidental. They're meant to galvanize what we have to believe about Jesus. And so the first thing that we see, a familiar setting, like it's intended to tell us something important about Jesus. Look at verse one. 
It says, and he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here. This is right after he said, Peter said, you are the Christ. And right after he said, the Christ has to come, suffer, be rejected, die, and be resurrected. And Peter said, that's crazy talk. And he says, get behind me, Satan. He says, now this, he said to them, truly I say to you, there are some standing here who will not taste death until they see the kingdom of God after it has come with power. And then a week later, they have a camping trip. And so everything about Jesus has been declared. You are the Christ. And he came back with, yes, I am. And I, it, I'm not going to live out my life the way you think it is. I'm not just going to rise to power and take the throne. To rise to power and take the th- throne, I have to go through the cross. And so look at this. In verse 2, it says, after six days, so six days later, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them and his clothes became radiant, intensely white, as no one on earth could bleach them. And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. Like there should be several things if you're familiar with the Old Testament that seem familiar here. There's a mountain, there's Moses. There's this enveloping cloud of the glory of God. And then we're going to see a voice in just a second. And so just a couple things about this like that are eerily similar that the disciples later on would have looked at and said, man, this was like replaying that event, but altogether different. Like they would have said, man, in Exodus 24, Moses goes up the mountain with three named people and he meets with God. Or they would have said in Exodus 34, Moses' appearance was changed so much that when he came down the mountain, the people of God were terrified of him. They made him wear a veil. And here in Jesus, he goes up the mountain with three named people and his appearance is changed. You know, in both of those events, God appeared in an overshadowing cloud and a voice was heard. You can read about Exodus 23 or all the way through 24. But when Moses descended the mountain, in the same way, the people were afraid of him because of his appearance. If we go on to verse 15, look down at verse 15. It says that when the people, they came to him, they were astonished. There's so many correlations here. And this is meant to make us look at Jesus and see Moses and all that he did in his shadow. This is meant to show us that someone greater than the great lawgiver, the founder of the faith, is in front of them. That it is some sort of all-encompassing thing that Jesus is doing. It's connecting the past to the present to point to the future. It's meant to show something about Jesus. You know, Later on, if you go read about Deuteronomy 18 and verse 15 through 20, Moses, when he's talking to the people of God, he says, hey, God's gonna raise up a prophet like me. He's gonna be somewhat in the manner of me, someone who, like Moses, would be able to hear from God and deliver his words to people. But this Moses is different from that Moses because this Moses doesn't have to climb up a mountain and wait and leave. And this Moses doesn't have to you know, eventually like die and go away and we can't find him, we can only read about him. This Moses is altogether different. This Moses is gonna fulfill the law of God, not just point to the law of God. And so we see this familiar scene, but we also see really familiar wording. Like familiar wording intended to tell us something about Jesus' ministry. And so like looking at verses four through six, like look first, we see this word, and it, it, it doesn't come out in the English translation, so it comes out in the Greek, which is just job security for me. Um, but look at this. So verse four, we see the word exodus. 
And so it says, And there appeared to them Elijah with Moses, and they were talking with Jesus. Now, we don't get all the description here, but if you thumbed over to Luke 9, we get more description. And so it tells us what they were talking about. And so in Luke 9, in verse 31, it says, Moses and Elijah appeared, and then it says, And spoke of his departure which he was about to accomplish at Jerusalem. And so the question is, what did he accomplish at Jerusalem? He died. So it says, they showed up to speak about his coming death, like to encourage him in this moment. Like we would see Jesus falter, you know, at the end, you know, during the end of his life as he was praying, Father, take this away. And so this is a moment that God sends help. They sit down and it was always to be this. And so you see the humanity of Jesus come through. Jesus suffered with doubt when he looked at circumstances. He said, is this really how it's supposed to be? And so God sent encouragement to talk about his death. But where it says departure, The word there is exodus. And so this event brought freedom. The exodus event brought freedom to the people of God. It was a miraculous event that took them from their slave captors to a promised land. And the people of God, we would say the same thing. We would say, man, I used to be enslaved by all kinds of things and I was living for them. I was trying to find help in them and they kept failing me. I kept running back to these things. And then I met Jesus and he freed me from that. And now I'm on the path to a promised place, the promised family of God where I will never be left, never forsaken. Nothing will ever take me away. And I'm, I have my savior with me, leading me, guiding me, telling me the words of God. All of this is meant to connect. And so as they're writing this, they want to use the words exodus. Jesus is a better Moses because he's dealing with the exodus that we're all going to walk through. But we also see another word. We see tabernacle. Look in verse 5. It says, And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents One for you, one for Moses, and one for Elijah. And it says, for he did not know what to say, for they were terrified. The the word where it says three tents is the word skene, and it means, it's the same word used to describe tabernacle. And, And so, like, the tabernacle was the place that God's people met with God as they wandered through the land, from the land of their enslavement to the promised land. And so you can imagine what Peter was thinking. Like In that moment, he sees Jesus. He sees Jesus change. He, he sees uh, Elijah, and he sees Moses there, and he sees this enveloping cloud of, of God's glory, and he says, man, this is a good thing. We have arrived. And instantly he starts making plans of really one of two things, and I think both are, he says, man, we gotta stay here. He has an experience Up on this mountain, he says, we just need to live here. It feels like all my problems are solved. But what happens is really there's almost no discourse. God just shows up. God speaks and says, listen, this is my son. Listen to him. And then the the cloud goes away, the light goes away, and it's just Jesus. And Jesus leads them down the mountain. Have you ever been on vacation and you thought, I've got to figure out how to be an Instagram influencer and just live on vacation 
We will homeschool our kids in our van life. I mean, you just thought, I just want to live here in this experience. Or, or you get married and you go to a honeymoon. And you're like, can we just somehow do marriage all the time in the honeymoon? But you're like, man, we have to go back to our lives. See, just a couple observations. Like this moment, this mountaintop moment. Like up on a mountain, you have breathtaking views where Maybe from a different vantage point, things on the ground seem to make sense. But trees don't grow on the mountain, so there's nothing to build a home with. Crops don't grow on the mountain, so there's nothing, nothing to sustain you. And Jesus led them off that mountain into a valley. And sometimes, according to Psalms 23, he leads us not just to a valley where we live. Sometimes it's a deep, dark valley. That's where the ministry of God is done. It's good to get away. It, you need these moments. But God never says live in that moment. And so I think it's at least saying that. But I think it's also saying something about the difference between religion and relationship. You see, when, when, when he said tabernacle, when he used the words, we need a tabernacle, every religion has some things. It has a place that you're supposed to go to meet with God. And then it has priests who do things to help you manage meeting with God. Like all of these things are built around to help you get there or to help protect you from God. And this was true of Judaism, but all of a sudden we see a change like if you see the picture, you have Moses' law, you have Elijah, the great prophet, and all of those things were ushering forward to this moment. And then you have blinding light and they're gone and all you have is Jesus. See, sometimes God enters into our life and we think, man, I've got to figure out how to manage. We start to act very religious. If I do certain things, then God, you're gonna help me out. Or if I don't do that, you're really, really gonna like me. Or if I give money to this Fetier thing, then you're going to bless me and you should give money to this Fetier thing. But we start to think, I need systems to try to control this. And the problem is Moses and Elijah go away and it's just Jesus, a person that walks them down into the valley. That's what was always prophesied. What was always prophesied was we, we wouldn't have like someone else to teach us about God. Like we would get God himself to whisper in our ear telling us which way to go. The disciples felt that. Like the exodus, Jesus is our saving exodus. The tabernacle, Jesus is the only safe place for us to meet with God. It's saying Jesus is the new forever place where we can meet with God as we also wander from our enslavement to our promised place in God's forever kingdom. Yes, he's like Moses, but he's so much more. And the final thing on this, we also hear a familiar voice pointing to a new and final focal point. Look at verse seven. It says, and a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out of the cloud. This is my beloved son. And we've already heard that back in Mark chapter one, verse 11. This is my beloved son. But then it says, listen to him. And I just, on a side, I just wanna say, that is everything that you need to understand to become a Christian. 
you need to look at Jesus and say, this is the son of God. Like he's not just a prophet. He's not just a guy that came to make us live better. He's not just a miracle worker, no matter how great. It's the son of God. And then this next part, listen to him above all other things. Listen to Jesus. And then verse eight, and suddenly looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them, but only Jesus. Like I think, the, I think Mark is telling us what happened. But I think in the events that he's disclosing what happened, he is saying something incredible. He's saying, Moses is gone. Elijah is gone. And Jesus is the bridge that connects God and humanity. Jesus is able to give what Moses and Elijah could only point at. Jesus is the place that we meet with God because he would become the ultimate sacrifice to end all sacrifices. Because of Jesus, we don't need some sort of pilgrimage to prove you know, our loyalty to God because Jesus proved his loyalty and gives us his loyalty. Because of Jesus, we don't need a priest. That's what Hebrews is all about. We don't need someone else to go between us and God. We just run to Jesus. Like so much in this. This says Jesus is all we need. The first point, and I, I told you the other ones are gonna be short. I swear. We see a familiar scene to help us understand who Jesus. Jesus is greater than those who he's talking with and he deserves our attention and investigation. But we see other familiar things. We see familiar names and faces pointing to who Jesus is. Now I wanna back up and I just wanna read verses four through 13 and we're gonna give Elijah some love here. And so, but four through 13, just listen, look at the names and faces. It says, and there appeared to them Elijah with Moses and they were talking with Jesus. And Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good that we are here. Let us make three tents, one for you, one for Moses and one for Elijah. And he did not know what he was saying for they were terrified. And a cloud overshadowed them and a voice came out from the cloud and it said, this is my beloved son, listen to him. And suddenly, looking around, they no longer saw anyone with them but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, he charged them to not tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. So they kept the matter to themselves, questioning what this rising from the dead might mean. And they asked him, what do the scribes say? Why do the scribes say that first Elijah must come? And he said to them, Elijah does come first to restore all things. And how is it written of the son of man that he should suffer many things and be treated with contempt? But I tell you that Elijah has come. And they did to him whatever they please as it is written of him. You know, in Matthew 17, we get this description, a very, very similar thing. And the disciples, there's a commentary. Matthew steps out and he says, man, we knew he was talking about John the Baptist. That John the Baptist came like Elijah to usher in the kingdom of God. And what happened was we did everything to him, beheaded. Like it's not by accident that Moses and Elijah meet Jesus on that mountain. Like by focusing on the scene, we've made several correlations with Moses. Man, looking at this, there's a stunning correlation that we see in the last words of the Old Testament that put Moses and Elijah together saying what the Savior was going to do. 
And so 400 years before Luke happened, before Jesus entered in, and we have the, the, the account of Jesus coming to a little manger in Bethlehem, 400 years before, Malachi speaks these prophetic words. And, and listen to like what he says. In Malachi 4, it says this, verses 4 through 6. Just listen. He says, Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and rules. So the law of God. So remember all that he says. He says that I commanded him at Horeb, that's also Mount Sinai, for all of Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And so Malachi paints this scene. You have Moses, the lawgiver. You have, you have Elijah, the prophet of God, coming right before the great and awesome day of the Lord. And so in, in the economy of, of Mark, what's happening is you have Mark saying the first half of the book, this is what Jesus did, this is how we know who he is. And then he says, the great day of the Lord is gonna come through his death. So now we're walking to it. And in this moment of transversing to the next chapter, we have this picture where you have Moses and you have Elijah ushering in the great day day of the Lord that's coming in the person of Jesus. It goes on in verse six of Malachi four to say, and he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children and the hearts of children to their fathers, lest I come and strike the land with a decree of utter destruction. Yeah, th th these verses are actually really influential in, in, in my life. And sometime I'll, I'll share all of that. Um, but like right here, it describes the great day of the Lord. Jesus came to turn our hearts back to God. And he came and died taking our penalty so that God's heart, the father could be turned back to us, his children. And that's what repentance is. An experience that your heart is turned back to the Father, that the Father's love is more important than whatever is in your hand, that you change your mind about what you're holding, that you change the way you're thinking, and all of a sudden, what he says and what he wants has more weight, and you just agree with him. Like, sometimes we think repentance has to, like, feel a certain way. Sometimes it does. Sometimes it's just making a decision, God, you're right, and that's what I'm gonna do. And so we see this familiar scene. We see these familiar names and all of them help us understand who Jesus is and what he's come to do. But I think there's one more thing I just wanna point out. And it's a familiar experience. I think this is a lead that we need to reenact to remember and remind ourselves of who Jesus is. Like as they walk down the mountain, Jesus tells them, don't tell anyone about this till after I rise again. And they're all like, man, what does he even mean? And like, we get real judgy, like, man, how did they not see it? Like, like, we read things in the scriptures, and then we're really late connecting that all the time. And Jesus said a lot of, like, he used parables, like, he said some crazy stuff. And so when something else sounds crazy, they're like, man, that's got to mean something. And so they were confused, so it didn't make sense, but he says, the world's not ready for this. What you've seen, they're not ready for. It's an experience that's not gonna be understood until after I rise again. 
And so ultimately the transfiguration was a small preview of the resurrection and maybe even a small preview of what's to come at the end of days when we are rised up with him. Or when we die, like a 1 Corinthians 15, and the corruptible falls off and we're able to put the incorruptible on. But this is recorded in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Because looking back at it, it was this, this moment, an experience that galvanized their faith that I think they probably went to to think about often to remind themselves of what their hearts were so quickly to forget. Jesus will change everything. Our hearts are so quick to forget that. Like if, you're, if you've been walking with Jesus for a while, a long time, a short time, chances are, just like the people of God, like Moses led them out of an enslavement. But like if you read about that, like they say crazy stuff. You know, like, like things get hard and they're like, man, I wish I was back in Egypt. I got all the free melons I could have. And you can think about Moses, like he had to have been a bald guy, like pulling his hair out because he's like, yeah, you never paid for the melons because you didn't have any money. You were slaves. We're so quick to forget something in front of us that just doesn't seem to be changing. We have to remember Jesus will change everything. His presence will envelop everything. That relationship, Jesus can change that. That disappointment, Jesus promises in Matthew 19, he says, at the return of, when the Son of Man comes back, at the renewal of all things, when, when you guys rule on the, on the 12 tribes of Israel, on the 12 thrones, like he says this prophetic thing. He says, the renewal of all things means the resurrection of all things. Whatever that disappointment, Jesus can change it. And we're so quick to forget because every day we hear the same kind of voices that tell the same kind of lies that drive us down in the same kind of dirt. We hear it over and over. And what do we see here? Look at verse two. And after six days, Jesus took with him Peter, James, and John and led him to high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them. Why? Why? do we need to be reminded that Jesus can transform all things? We forget. And then we run to other things to try to change these things. We, we start to manipulate. We start to lie a little bit. We, we start to kind of try to work events and control them. We start to get really, really anxious and to freak out because we think that's gonna help and we know it's not gonna help and then that makes us even more anxious because we're doing it and we can't stop it. We try so many things. And after six days, they were reminded, Jesus can change anything. In Hebrews 10, when it says, don't give up gathering together, you know, and that's why we, like, you need to be in a city group. If you're in a city group, you need to be in a life transformation group. You need to meet up to talk about the lies that you hear and the things that you're starting to do to let people know how you need to repent and what you need to do, to let them just pray for you and love you, that as you walk down the mountain into the valley, you can say things like Peter, James, and John did, like, man, I don't know what that meant. Like, what does he mean rise again? Like, we talk those things out. Like after six days, at least once a week, we need to be reminded that Jesus can change everything. You need to be reminded of what they saw right there, that the law of God was fulfilled in Jesus. You can rest 
because of what Jesus did, what was spoken over him in Mark 1, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased. It is given to you. You know, because that he met with Elijah, all the prophetic words kind of there. You know, Elijah saved God's people from, from the tyranny of their king that was leading them away. Like you need to be reminded that Jesus came to fulfill all of that. Worshiping is coming together to remind yourself to look at the person of Jesus and say, that is the son of God. I need to listen to him. And as soon as they heard that voice, everything else was gone. It was just Jesus. When you look at Jesus, what do you see? When you you look at what Jesus says, does it have authority on your life? Or is it just an opinion that you're gonna agree with when it sounds right to you? They heard a voice that says, this is my son. Listen to him. You know, just two verses, and then I'll pray with us, for us. I'll lead you in communion, and I'll pray for us. I didn't bring communion stuff up here. I'll lead you in communion. I'll tell you to do it. Jesus says a lot of times of what, why he came, what he came to fulfill, what he came to do. And so just two verses. First, Jesus says that he came to fulfill what you could never do. In Matthew 5, 17, it says, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. All of the law is a weight that you will never fulfill, no matter how good you are or how much people like you or how giving you are. You'll never fulfill it. It was meant to push you. It leads us into, like, show us what abundant life is. It shows us what it's supposed to look like, but we can't do it. And so Jesus says, don't think I've come to abolish them. I came to fulfill them. And so we see Jesus talking with Moses, the pointer, the fulfiller. Or we, you know, Jesus says this. Jesus says that he came for those who know that they need him. In Luke 5, verse 32, it says, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. If you know that you need Jesus, you see him correctly. If you think you're doing pretty good and you're okay on your own, you're in the greatest danger. Moses and Elijah were gone and all they saw were Jesus and the voice that they heard is, this is Jesus, listen to him. Where do you need to listen to Jesus? And so one thing in his coming of what it means of how do we, he's called sinners to repentance. How does he fulfill the law? We see it in communion and we see it in the broken body of Jesus and the spilt blood of Jesus. And so Christian, We invite you to take communion and we start with the broken body of Jesus. Like he entered humanity and he was pulled apart by anxieties and loss and brokenness. The weight of our sin was laid upon him. Christians, the body of Jesus broken for you. And then he held up the cup to remind us of what would cost him 
How would he bring us to the family of God? How would he bring us to the true promised land? And it was by the precious price of his blood. And so we remember that Jesus' blood was spilt for your life, the blood of Jesus. Lord, we love you. And uh, Lord, I pray that we just start to, we can see you rightly. And Lord, to say that Jesus you have replaced the law of Moses is not to say that there's not wisdom and the law is not important. It's incredibly important. But to say you have fulfilled it means that striving can cease and that we can look at Jesus and we can say something crazy. What do you think about me? In this moment from last week, he says, what do people say about me? And they finally got, you are the Christ. And because we are now in the household of God, we can look at Jesus and say, Jesus, what do you think about me? Father, I pray that you would work there as we would read the scriptures, we would find promises of what you say about us and we would be revived. In Jesus' name, amen.